again, we say thank you. For, thank you for the music. Thank you for you being here and for all of you that uh, weathered the storm this morning. <laughs> it was uh, coming right down there for a while. And we're glad you went ahead and made it out anyway. A couple of announcements I want to, or, and reminders. Uh, of course, Ken will be speaking next week and we'll be going up to Indiana. So be praying for him. And uh, which means we won't be here next Wednesday either because we leave on Wednesday. And uh, pray that it'll be warm. <laughs> I don't want it to be cold in Indiana. <laughs> I've been in Indiana in June, and it was, he had to wear a coat, and I don't like that. <clears throat> and don't forget, on the 23rd, Jackie Powell's going to be here to speak, and I know you'll want to be here for that and look forward to that. And then on the 29th, when we get back uh, from Indiana, that Wednesday, we have a men's meeting, so be prepared for that as well. And then I have a card here from the folks at Grace Baptist down in Sylvania, Alabama. Thank you card it says again thank you for your continued friendship and glorious or gracious gift please continue to pray that the lord would uh show us uh his generous and gracious mercies as we endeavor to walk in a manner that would be pleasing to him in Christ Grace Baptist Church and so we do want to remember them and of course we have the meeting coming up with them down in Sylvania Alabama the fellowship meeting which will be after the service here. Then we just hop in the car, drive down there. They're an hour behind us, so we'll arrive right on time. It's about an hour down there or so. So they tell me. I've never been there, but uh, we're going to find out. Sarah's been there a couple times, I think. <laughs> I sat right in front of Zach yesterday, so she has a special reason for wanting to go. And... Uh, Looking forward to the fellowship with, with those folks. And then if you get a chance when you leave this morning, why take a gander up at our roof. Well, we're supposed to be nice and clean. I didn't look at Oh, not yet? Oh, okay. Got to give it some time. Well, I thought maybe all this rain would wash that off and <laughs> it'll take a little bit, bit of work. We had some, uh, Mike here did some spray on the, roof here that uh, it's going to take you know that real black uh, moldy uh, mildew on there it's going to clear all that off and make it look a lot nicer so we're looking forward to getting that done too i tried to talk him into finishing ken's job that he and i started you know we <laughs> we you know we we cleaned the steeple off but we got all but this last part right at the top but he he didn't bite on that one so we just let it go that's a long way up there <laughs> It doesn't look so bad when you're on the ground looking up. You think, well, I can do that. When you get up on the ladder, it's a whole different world up there. And uh, Ken didn't want to go up, and I didn't want to go up. So we stopped where we could, did and just let it go. Let it set. <coughs> All right. Revelation, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And you have a hand out there that'll be a, maybe just a little bit of assistance. That's a, just a little bit of a visual here to help us locate these churches that we're going to be looking at. But I wanted to read, I guess I try to not read the whole thing, but then it's kind of hard not to. So here we go. 
we'll just read <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and um, go all the way at, at this point over to chapter 2 and verse 1. So that sounds like an odd thing, but you'll understand as we get going. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his slaves things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his slave, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now that's why I decided I wanted to go ahead and read the whole portion. Because not only the one who's doing the reading, but those hearing the words of the prophecy will be blessed. If they keep those things, he says, which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now there's our first reference to the seven churches that you see on the handout that we're going to be talking about. And who this... uh, monograph, epistle, whatever you want to call revelation, is directed to, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Or yours may say, loosed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its uh, strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now I'm going to stop right there because that's the portion that I want to deal with this morning. The angel. Now, of course, it's going to apply to all seven of these churches in chapters 2 and 3, the ones that were mentioned earlier that we read about. The angel unto the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna and Pergamum, and so on. Now, In chapter in uh, one seventeen, he tells us there. Well, actually, let's just jump down to, to verse twenty. He says there concerning the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Now you saw a depiction of that in this handout here. You can't see the stars too well; uh, they were pretty bright. You know, so they didn't copy so well, but it's just a depiction to give you an idea, a visual on what he's talking about here. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of those candlesticks, then seven stars in his right hand. And he tells us here that he describes or interprets for us what it means. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And of course, that word angel is angelos, and its, um, its primary meaning is to be a messenger. Uh, sometimes it is translated uh, or transliterated literally as angel, and that's what it is or implies Other times, uh, it can mean something else, which we're going to be looking at here this morning. But then he says, in finishing verse 20, he says, And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So, in this depiction, you see the seven candlesticks. They represent seven churches. The seven stars in his right hand represent seven and his arch translation has it, angels. But of course, the question is, is what are they for sure? In other words, are they literally angels? 
Could they just be messengers of the churches? Or could they be, as some say, the pastors of the churches? Or could they be somebody else? You know, there's not complete agreement as to just who who the angels are. But I want us to look at something this morning and just take a thought as to what could be. I'm not saying that I think it is necessarily, uh, but what could be these angels and who they represent. And the reason you'll see a little later as we get into farther into the message of why that should be of such importance to each and every one of us here and not just to uh, me if it happens to be pastor. Look at, well, let's go back to start with um, Genesis chapter 12 and You can see based on the message last week that um, I haven't gotten very far away from this topic because we dealt with several passages here last week. Genesis chapter 12 and of course in 1, 2, and 3 we have the promise given to Abraham as to how he would be a blessing to all the earth. And in verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. What I want us to notice as we walk through this is the progression that is being made. Notice here the simplicity of the promise. All it says is, unto thy seed, and I will give thee this land. And then you'll notice immediately, Abram built an altar in response to that promise. If you turn over, uh, just worry, or if you're have a Bible like mine, you don't even really need to turn over. You just go across the page to chapter 13 and verses 15 and 16. And here we find the promise given again. In verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. Now, so we see an expansion on this promise that not only would he just have a seed that would inherit the land, but it's going to multiply as the dust of the earth. Basically, I think he's trying to say, Abraham, you're not going to be able to number them. They're going to be so great. Matter of fact, he says, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, so shall thy seed also be numbered. Then, if we turn over to chapter 15, we find this promise given again. 
course, Abram is childless and his body, basically for as far as reproduction is concerned, his body's dead, unable to reproduce. And he gets a little nervous about it. In verse 3, he says, one born in my house is mine heir. Now, when he says, when you see that phraseology in the scriptures, all he means is they're a slave. One that was born in my house means somebody that I own. And because he was born in my house, I own him. And he's all I have to be the heir. And so if you look at verse 5, he says, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now that's in response to verse 4, where he told him that one shall come forth out of your own bowels. He will be your heir. And so now we have them numbered as the stars of heaven. So shall thy seed be. And in response to this, Abram believed God in verse 6, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he told him then that he's in verse 7, concerning the land, he says, I'll give thee this land to inherit it. Now the word inherit means to actually become a possessor of, to own it. All right? Now turn over to chapter 22 and verse 17. And the next thing that we see beginning with um, verse 16 or verse 15 the angel of the lord called unto abraham out of heaven the second time and 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 by the way that probably is significant as well rather than the angel coming down to earth to speak to abraham he speaks out of heaven and he says in verse 16 by myself have i sworn saith the lord for because thou hast done this and, uh, thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. Now this is all in response to the fact that Abraham willingly took his son, Isaac, and was going to offer him in obedience as a sacrifice. God staying his hand when he saw his obedience. And so the blessing is going to come in verse 17. And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now that's a a further expansion of this promise. Now it's the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. And many see here, as I do, a dual seed promise then. You have a promise to the seed, which is of heaven, and a promise to the seed, which is of the earth. The heavenly 
and the earthly. And we'll see this as we continue on. And I like this phrase here at the end. He says, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's talking about having authority and power and rulership. Those who sat in the gate of a city in the ancient times were those who were in leadership positions. They were, as it were, the politicians of their day. And those who walk in the faith of Abraham ultimately one day will attain to that sort of power, that sort of authority. It's amazing that so many times we have the tendency to say, well, I'm not interested in such a thing. But in reality, deep down, I think that is the reality for most people. That we want to be in control of our lives. That we want to be able to exhibit some sort of power, some sort of authority. And God here willingly expressing the fact that through Abraham, he is going to allow men to share in his future rule and authority over the earth. And it's promised from a heavenly aspect, the stars of heaven, and from an earthly aspect, from the sand of the seashore. Now, Turn on to chapter 26. And verse 4. Now, with Abraham's son, Isaac, in verse 4, he gives the promise to him as well. He says in verse 4, And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so God reiterates his promise to Isaac because of Abraham's faithfulness. And then if we turn over to chapter 32 and verse 12 regarding Isaac's son, Jacob. And in 32, 12, rather than the stars, he reverts back to the sand of the seashore. And he tells Jacob, I will surely do thee good, And make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, of course, I think the reason he does that is, I think, should be pretty obvious to us, is that through Jacob then came the twelve sons, who became, of course, Israel, and to whom the earthly promises were made and given and will yet be fulfilled. So what I'm alluding to here then is that the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore represent two different seed promises as it were. Now, move on then to Hebrews chapter 11 
And we were in Hebrews last week. So we want to look at Hebrews chapter 11, but not the same verses. Although we're going to look at quite a few here. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse, beginning with verse 8, we find by faith Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself conceived, uh, received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Who did? All these that he has spoken of up to this point, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all died in faith with respect to the promise that he gave that there would be a multitude of descendants coming forth, both as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore. So let's continue on. And he says in the middle of verse 13, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You know, that's, that's a strong statement. Concerning that promise, they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That means that in their actions and in their lives that they lived, there was a clear distinction between those who lived around them, who were attached to the world, and they who pitched their tents and dwelt in tents and made no association as far as permanency with the earth. So though they were to inherit the land and there was a land promise, they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Why? Well, we continue on. Verse 14 says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, a fatherland, a homeland, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That word desire, they aspire to, they long for a better country. That is, and heavenly. So he describes it for us. That which they are to inherit, it is a heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he hath prepared for them a city. And we looked at that last week, so we won't delve into that any farther. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, whence, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. In other words, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, there was a one constant continuous faith in the promise that God has given. And that faith was revealed to have been a heavenly country, a desire that was on their hearts and a longing for a city which was prepared by God. Now, having said all of that, you turn over in chapter 12 of Hebrews to verse 22, and he tells us there concerning these Hebrew Christians that he's writing to and encouraging and admonishing to remain in the faith, he tells them, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, which can be touched. That was a physical place. That was a real mountain. There was real fire there. There was real thunder and lightning there. God's presence was felt there. You haven't come to that place, he said. You have come to something different. You have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, he says, which is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now I want to stop right there. Because you probably wonder, well, what does all this have to do with seven stars in the book of Revelation? Well, you know, back over in Revelation, chapter 1, or 2, rather, in verse 1, he tells us there concerning these seven stars he says these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand now I want to say something about that word hold because it's a strong word if you if you turn a page to chapter 3 and verse 11 When he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia, he says, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, 
that no man take thy crown. And you know that expression there, hold that fast, is the same word we have over here in chapter 2 and verse 1. But you'll notice he says, hold it fast so that no one takes your crown. In other words, hang on. Don't let go. Keep a firm grip on it. Now, of course, that's metaphorically. There are some things we need to do if we're going to hang on and to keep those things which he's promised to us. Back in, and just by way of further reference, back in John chapter 10, you don't find the, this word there, but you find what I'm looking at is the concept there. With regard to the Lord Jesus Christ and the seven stars which he is holding in his right hand, he says in verse 27, John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man, or actually, literally, any one, pluck them out of my hand. Now think about that. This is stating it from the negative side. He holds his sheep in his hand. And he says, no man, no one. And I like the expression no one better because that's what it literally says. But it means neither on, in heaven nor on earth can pluck them out of my hand. I have such a firm grip, such a strong hold. Verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Neither my hand nor my father's hand. I and my father are one. Well, you know what kind of trouble that statement caused (laughs) and what kind of response the Lord got from that. But my point here is, is what this expression here, he that holds the seven stars in his hand. They are secure in his hand. And yet it says, concerning the Lord Jesus, he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And the picture you have there then is in these seven churches as representations of all the churches of all time during this age. And the Lord is constantly about observing his churches, considering their spiritual health or their spiritual welfare and what kind of condition they are in. And so, to say all that then, to back up for a minute then, now let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 20 again. And let's notice once again that he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So if we go down to chapter 2 and verse 1 where it says unto the angel of the church, we could just as well say unto the star of the church at Ephesus. 
So what does the star represent? And all I want to do is suggest that in, in simply making a connection between the promises that God gave to Abraham regarding his seed and the heavenly promise and being as innumerable as the stars of heaven that these angels here of these seven churches or these stars of these seven churches could very well represent, I think, those who are the seekers of his kingdom. Those who are the ones longing and desiring to obtain the inheritance. Those who are seeking after, desirous of, participation in the coming rule of Christ. And that simply means then, the message is for you and I. You know, it, it always is kind of bothersome to, you know, most, I think most of, in circles that we go in and that would understand that, you know, they would call these angels the pastors of the churches. But it seems to me that if we look upon these as the stars of the churches, as he tells us in verse 20 of chapter 1, then the application makes it directly to every single one of us. And none of us are off the hook. Therefore, having said that, then these angels, these stars who have set their affections on things above need to give due diligence to what he tells us here in these seven letters to these seven churches or the one letter to all seven of the churches. And we don't obviously have time this morning to go through all of these but I do want to mention just a few of them because there is warning and promise to each one. In Ephesus, the problem there was, as probably the, the most famous one, uh, they left their first love. Now that's easy to do. The most amazing thing to me is they, they were doing so many things right. He says... I know your works, your labor, your patience, that is, your steadfastness, your perseverance, how you cannot bear or endure or tolerate them which are evil. And you've tested them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars and have borne or tolerated or, or endured and has patience for my name's sake and has labored and has not fainted and so on nevertheless I have somewhat against thee thou hast left thy first love you know that thought ran me right back to Matthew chapter 7 where the Lord said many in that day many 
will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not in your name done all these many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, iniquity. Doing all the right things and yet having left their first love. That's possible. That's possible to do all kinds of things in the name of the Lord and yet not love him. In Smyrna, very little said negatively. As a matter of fact, he doesn't really state it as such negatively. It's just the implication is there. He says in verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. Notice that little phrase there. But thou art rich. Doesn't seem to make a statement one way or the other. But the implication is pretty clear. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you're really rich. And then Pergamum. Pergamum. And verse 13, listen to what happens there. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. And notice that word again. And thou holdest fast my name. In the midst where Satan's throne is, they held fast, were holding fast his name. But... The problem there was they held the doctrine of Balaam. And the doctrine of Balaam was they they wanted to pay to hear what they wanted to hear. We'll pay you, pastor. Now you preach what we tell you to preach. That's in essence what they're saying here. Of course, I know you don't want that. Thyatira, in Thyatira, they they fell victim to Jezebel, who, who he says there, they teach my slaves to commit fornication, spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery with false teachers or with the world. Either one, they were guilty. In Sardis, he said there, some have defiled their garments. I was thinking about that while we were singing that song. Have you washed your garments in the blood? You know, we sang this morning. That's a requirement. We need to do it on a regular basis. Be sure that our garments are spotless. And then in Philadelphia, of course, he didn't say anything negative about Philadelphia, but we sure do when we come to Laodicea. And we're well aware in Laodicea, God says, I hate lukewarmness. Of all the things that he could possibly say, out of all these seven churches and of all, all the things that, that were spoken of in a negative fashion, the one thing he says, I hate, I hate lukewarmness. And I don't think sometimes that you and I, we really appreciate God's view of our devotion to him and how lax that we can make it because we don't fully embrace as it says back there in 
Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, regarding those saints and the God's promises, it says they embraced them and in their embracing of them declared they were strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. Tell you what, if you wanted to say that I'm a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth and then you turn around and go live in a tent, that would pretty well show that you meant what you said, wouldn't it? That's exactly what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three did as a testimony to their embracing of God's promises to them. Well, of course, there's more. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He says there, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I'm telling you, that's the hard one. That is hard to know that when God rebukes you, when he chastens you, and I feel like I've been rebuked and chastened a lot from the Lord, but it's because I needed it, and it's because I know he loves me. And I've prayed and asked God to make the changes in me so that I can become not lukewarm and I don't want to be cold. I want to be hot. I want to be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ in that day when he comes again. And so when he comes again, My robe will be pure and white and washed and clean and ready to be received of him. And in each of these churches, each of these churches, he says that we are to be overcomers, victors, if we will but take the admonishment and obediently follow him in faith and we can overcome. We can overcome and walk as a victor walks in triumph and he will receive us as such. But you know in that last one there, well, if you look at each of these churches, it says to him that overcometh he that overcometh, and then in uh, to Thyatira, uh, he that overcometh, to Sardis, it says, he that overcometh, and to Philadelphia, him that overcometh, but to Laodicea, he says in verse 21, to him that overcometh. But notice what the promise is then, to all of these that overcome. He says, will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne? This is the promise that he's given us, that we can share in that future rule. Let's not take it lightly and let's treat it with the soberness that God treats it in his word. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we do want to thank you that you've allowed us to be here this morning and that uh, in spite of the weather that you brought our way, that there were those who hunger and thirst for your word and determined to be here at any cost. And so we just want to say thank you for that and thank you for the beauty and the wonder of the rain and, and, and what you bring to us. And we thank you, Father, for it. Now, I pray that you will keep our hearts tender and open unto your word, that we would be alive unto those things that you desire us to hunger after and to thirst after. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 